Here we are with another edition of Blunt Business on CannabisRadio.com. My next guest represents a Denver-based premier cannabis and tech venture capital and consulting firm that provides guidance, capital strategy, and corporate governance to companies in emerging markets. I'm joined by the Chief Investment Officer of Clientel Capital. Let me spell that out for you. C-L-I-I-N-T-E-L Capital. And I'm here with Rick Battenberg. Rick, thanks for being on with us. Hey, thank you so much for, for having me. That is the best introduction I think I've ever had, actually. So thank you so much. Keep it smooth. We quick, keep it quick because we know our podcast listeners out there. Short of, actually, I just I had a quote uh, for an article coming up and they asked, you know, what's the most important thing about the intro for a podcast? I said, you know what? Your listeners have short attention span. You Make better let them know what who they're listening to and what they're talking about. The first 30 seconds. If you don't, you might lose that. You might lose the retention. Hey, it's you all about, you clearly know what you're doing. I've seen your listeners. So it's about you know, audience retention. Sure. Hopefully, hopefully I add some value for you. So you're a former and I should have put you on. I could almost put you on plant profits because they like the profiles and leadership. You're a former financial advisor and private equity specialist at Merrill Lynch. You've yep. assisted cannabis startup companies with capital strategy, corporate governing, investor relations and mentoring C-level executives through growth and funding processes as clientele's CIO. So I want to know from you about the community, the, the commonalities, excuse me, and the contrast between the mainstream sector you worked at with Merrill Lynch and mainstream financing with what you encounter regularly in the cannabis side of venture capital consulting. Sure. You know, my work at uh, Merrill Lynch, I did a lot of the syndicate on new issues and IPOs. So I looked at a lot of deals, a lot of look at companies that were funding, right? So they were uh, funding new capital, raising new capital for um, whatever venture they might have. And these are generally established companies, but looking at the style format and um, kind of the, the boilerplate information that was provided to me uh, so that I could then talk to my retail clients about, hey, this is what this company is doing. And I really got a very clear understanding on what it takes to look and feel and taste like a company that can be funded, you know, taken public, whatever it might be. Um, and so from the translation perspective, understanding that when I left Merrill Lynch, it was really because I saw a, I saw an opportunity in cannabis because there was a capital inefficiency, because there was a lack of investors that were allowed to invest into cannabis. So by creating uh, a venture fund, we became the first qualified institutional fund in the country to hold a, a license inside of a, a venture fund. And that structure is really what allowed me to allocate capital across the supply chain to establish a diligence baseline. So grow extraction, dispensary, packaging, hardware, compliance, training, licensing, didn't matter. Um, and the point of that was to establish a diligence baseline because nobody really knew what a good cannabis company was supposed to do. But my work at Merrill, um, looking at what these more established companies do when they're raising money, made it made me aware of what it was going to take for a cannabis company to move to the next level like this is what you what you need to look like regardless of what industry you're in this is what it takes this is the diligence level at the highest level that is expected if you want to uh, raise money from institutional or or high net worth people or whoever it might be and i'm gonna imagine it's always been interesting with the cannabis industry since we started the network in 2015 the reliance upon venture capital when it's so tough. I mean, there's, there's just no institutional funding because the regulations aren't there and you're working through. And the one thing I always notice, and I will talk about this a little bit later is there's always the high risk involved, but that, but the rewards are so deep if done correct. If they, if you lock in with the right company. Absolutely. So you're absolutely correct that, the capital markets in general, right? I, I, I think of them as a cake, right? And so 
in this stack of cake, this tiered cake, um, as you move down, the pool gets bigger, right? So at the very bottom, right, you've got the public markets, right? Everybody can invest, right? Mm -hmm. And at the tippy tippy top, you've got uh, angel investors, right? And then you've got everything in between. And so what's been going on is the, the, the cake has been started to be eaten by the cannabis industry, right? Um, and the highest risk tolerance, the angel investors, and then you've got venture capital, then you've got private equity, then you've got you know institutional capital, then you've got, um, we call it uh, big funds, and then you've got the public markets, right? Um, and because the risk is so much higher, right? The cake might fall over. <laughs> um, the risk is so much higher at the tippy tippy top, that capital is ex super expensive for those companies. And so a lot of um, unsophisticated cannabis companies, especially in their, in their early stages, not only did they not have a lot of people to go to for capital, but the people that they were asking for capital for were highly sophisticated and frankly taking advantage of these companies because they could. Um, so a lot of good cannabis companies gave up so much equity early that they've hamstrung themselves at this point that they can't even move forward because that they've given away so much equity and they've given away so much, you know, they've got bad debt instruments because the debt markets and the equity markets were so competitive um, or so non-competitive, um, you know, during the evolution of cannabis, which created these really inefficient capital structures uh, for a lot of these uh, private cannabis companies that has created an opportunity right now, in my opinion. And I think about the also that, there have, there have been companies and, you know, I'll talk to some friends of mine in the space and I have one friend of mine, a good friend of mine that uh, has always been very much involved in trying to get funding for his own projects. He runs sure. a tracking software. And I'll tell you, it's funny how many different companies he's like, how is it these other companies get this, this kind of spend and they just blow it away. They yep. just let it go. And there's nothing that can be done about it. For me, it's like, you know, I think of Robert Kiyosaki's book, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, or the uh, investment investors quotient. I think it is again. That, that book's sitting right behind me right now, actually. <laughs> there you go. Frank, baby. <laughs> you know what? Because I was trying to learn a lot about the start market right at the start of pandemic. That was like my hobby to pick up right then and there. Not yeah. so much now because, you know, we have inflation and just this very volatile market. We're a bear market now. Anybody saying it else? Otherwise, I don't believe it. But to make sure that one of these cannabis companies becomes bait for a qualified investor like mm -hmm. to be able to go reach those high end because you know of course you're going to have those investors that you know that, that are you could try to get some celebrity jump in on it or somebody else that doesn't know what's going on financially i've got some strong opinions about that too so <laughs> well i would love to hear them sure so you know at the consumer level uh people really don't care about what celebrities endorsing a product at all um and we see oh, no, what i'm saying is because yeah just they don't care the other thing is that the companies that are trying to get the investment money, if they can get them to be suckered into giving the money up and it's a, it's a lost cause. I mean, how many somebody's do we know that have gone broke on bad deals? Absolutely. Oh my gosh. I have seen, and I've seen thousands of deals and I can't tell you how many of them had nothing to do with the quality of the company's product. And that's, that's really the tragic part. And, and there's two components to that that are really the biggest key, right? So the application 280E, makes it extraordinarily difficult for a private cannabis Agreed. company to be profitable. Almost impossible, frankly. Um, and, and the unfair application of that is a serious problem that has uh, stifled the development of the cannabis industry in general. Um, the second component is because of the lack of sophistication of uh, many of the, the Gen 1 operators, Gen 2 operators, in making these deals with these very sophisticated, um, high-risk-tolerant 
venture capital and, and high net worth people, uh, they've put themselves in a really tough position from a capital stack perspective uh, to move forward any, any further, right? So you've, you've got an environment where you can't write your, uh, your labor, your insurance, or your rent against your top line revenue. So you're raising your effective tax rate. I've seen deals where their effective tax rate is north of 50%. Um, which makes it extraordinarily difficult to become a profitable company, right? So these sort of macro uh, regulatory issues have really hindered the, the <laughs> manifest destiny of the brands, if you will. Um, so, you know, whenever I'm evaluating companies, we look at different metrics other than necessarily just what's, what, how much money did you make? You know, um, top line revenue and amount of distribution, how many consumers know who you are is a better metric for whether or not your brand or product is going to be valuable in 10 years than how much net revenue you're producing. So that evaluation has given us a unique insight into um, kind of who is being successful in the cannabis industry and, and who is establishing that emotional relationship with the consumer. Yeah. You know, I don't know if the Safe Banking Act, if when that ever gets to be something that will finally get <laughs> in front of the Senate, you know, after it goes to the House, it goes to Rules Committee, gets passed, and then we get to the Senate, and of course, everything gets dies in the Senate. But that would be ultimately the way to neutralize that Section 280 of the tax code. I mean, hopefully, that is something that's embedded in that bill someday if we get that to kind of help well well i'll tell you I'll tell you the same thing my father's been telling me since i was a kid is hope is not a strategy um and uh it's not it's not uh for sure that 280 would go away with the safe banking um there's a variety of ways that 280 could go away um you know descheduling rescheduling legalization 280 could do it um, but because there's so much chaos in Washington, um, it's very hard to go, okay, well, here's when it's going to happen. Here's what's going to happen. So if you're a cannabis operator, uh, you know, making a plan based off of a regulatory shift is a really difficult thing to do. And it's also a difficult thing to sell it to an investor, right? Because it's like, well, I ha they have no control of it, right? And if your business plan is predicated on only being profitable when you get 280 removed, well, you got to survive until then, right? So how do you evaluate that company? You know, but in my opinion, as a venture capitalist, that creates an asymmetrical risk to return per, uh, a profile, meaning I know I'm going to get a bump. It's not if, it's when, right? I know it's coming, right? So how you need to use different metrics to do the diligence on uh, the type of companies that we look at taking positions in. And when you think back about people that you still know in the circles in finance, in the financial sector and investing when you worked at Merrill Lynch and the people you met around those other institutions, you know, I always have Steve D'Angelo. I remember, I always remember him talking to uh, Richard Zwicky on the Green Peak in the episode there on our network. And I just remember him talking about, you know, there are investors in Silicon Valley. And I just think also there are a lot of investors, potential investors. They're just waiting in the wings. They are just fence sitting right now, waiting for something from cannabis to open up uh, regulatory wise. And they're going to jump on it. Do you, you know, think that's what's happening now? Are they just basically just waiting for something to come up and they're going to just jump in? Well, I think that you're painting with a real broad brush there. So let me be more specific. Oh, please. Okay. Um, there's always investors waiting in the wings for something to happen, right? And you're seeing that 
the, the reactionary market or the retail market, when we see some sort of a legislation passed that doesn't mean anything, right? And you see the reaction of the stock. Now, there's always investors waiting in the wings, right? There, and I can tell you that I know way more financial people than I do the, from, from my work in the venture capital space in the last eight years than I did in the three years I worked at Merrill Lynch. You know, Merrill Lynch, I, my relationship was largely with the, my retail clients and it was I, was, I was sitting there reading a lot, right? Being out there and, and playing the game, you know, meeting all the, the investment banks, working with Canaccord, you know, I've met with every C-suite um, of publicly traded companies, you know, the, it's a small world as you, as you start to get bigger and bigger. And frankly, the big banks is really the only powerful lobby in DC that has anything to gain from federal legalization because they've been watching Canaccord Genuity make all kinds of money raising money for cannabis companies that are, were buying U.S. operators, right? And they're raising money at like 182 times forward earnings in, in November of 2018. So the, I can tell you that money is absolutely poised and ready and wants this, right? That's really the only big lobby in D.C. that has anything to gain from what's called federal legalization, deschedulization, safe banking. Um, because the feds are already picking up a bunch of tax revenue from cannabis, they're not really incentivized to federally legalize cannabis. They don't really make any extra money. So when we talk about this, uh, this push, it's really uh, good to understand that the feds don't care. They're already making the money, right? Like, oh, you know, legalize it and tax it. Oh, they did. They already did. And you know what? They let the states handle it. And that's part of the other reason I don't think we're going to see interstate trade commerce is because Guess what? When two state citizens sue each other of two different states, it automatically becomes a federal matter, which means the feds would have to oversee it. And uh, we don't have any infrastructure or, or precedence to oversee cannabis cases, right? So they want the states to deal with it. It's going to stay a state's right. And, uh, you know, having worked, having grew up here in Colorado, and I, I know some of our politicians here, state politicians, and there's nothing that unites Democrats and Republicans quite like hating DC. You know, they basically just stay out of our, stay out of our shit. We don't, we don't want you here. We don't need you to tell us how to run our state. Uh, so there's not a lot of pressure from the big money in DC for federal legalization. And that's just the truth. The only pressure is coming from the banks who stand to benefit from doing the investment banking for the cannabis industry to, to allow more institutional capital come into these, these yeah. spaces. We actually had Governor Polis uh, from Colorado on our NCAA's cannabis industry voice talking about that kind of struggle right there with DC and having to get letters sent up there and trying to get some responses back. And yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've spent some time <laughs> with uh, Mr. Polis. So and you know what? Up. I'll tell you, Rick, it, you know, you talk about how big banks, okay. I was just looking up right now on open secret style work, $57 million spent on lobbying by the commercial banks in 2021. But you know, who's got a little bit more than that? Big pharma quarter of a billion, <laughs> you know, big pharma's got a big, big genius they well they absolutely do and you got to remember that big pharma is completely predicated on the infrastructure of our medical system so um you know their ability to spend a hundred million dollars developing a drug right and then having it patented right and then having a, a finite amount of time to charge an obnoxious amount of money for it mm -hmm. is how that business model works and when you've got a plant right? That, that largely can replace some of the pharmaceuticals. That's a big threat to that industry, 
yeah. and to a lot of very smart and to a lot of very um, highly invested people that have a lot to lose. So, yeah. you know, what's going on right now and why you're seeing this constipation in DC with the federal legalization is because there's a lot of posturing going on. You know, things change when rich guys and white, rich white guys and ties make money. And that's the truth, right? In Washington. And if they're not positioned correctly, shit ain't going to change. So right now you're seeing a lot of posturing going on by big pharma, big ag, uh, big food, um, you know, and then you've got alcohol, tobacco, you've got all, all, everybody's looking at cannabis, trying to understand where they want to be in that supply chain, where do they want to be when it, as it pertains to touching the consumer. But if you're already a big company mm-hmm. and you're already doing deals multi-state, you really can't touch cannabis yet, right? So no. they don't want to see it until they feel like they're in a position to take advantage of it, which is why you're not seeing it just jam through because the consent, the, the, the votes are in, right? <laughs> Worldwide, definitely in the United States, this is a good thing, right? We've got hard data out of Colorado, which in my opinion is the most developed and mature cannabis market in the world, representing real true Keynesian economics and consumer driven price theory. Yeah. We know it's good. We know it's good for the people. We know it's good. We, we, all the data points to, this is a good thing for the people, for the businesses, for the tax structure, for the schools, for the impact on our youth, for for the impact on, uh, you know, people that are, that are dealing with a chronic medical crisis. It's unequivocal, right? The only reason that it hasn't moved forward, only reason is because what's happening in Washington is that the people who have the biggest lobbies are not positioned to take advantage of the of the uh burgeoning cannabis industry yet it's not enough they, the, the, it's not enough they have already have the money in there it's about who's getting it and who's getting it to the right people to do some make make some moves yeah got it you got there it you go. so there's a lot more to talk about we got to go to a break but when we come back i want to go ahead and ask you though you were actually interviewed about how 2022 will be a year of consolidation and competition for cannabis and it's been about four months since you made some comments to forbes magazine we're going to talk about that after a short break i'm here with the chief investment officer of clientele capital, Rick Battenberg, and the website is clientelecapital.com, C-L-I-I-N-T-E-L, capital.com. Check a look at the website as we go to break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with Rick Battenberg, chief investment officer at Clientele Capital. Now, you were interviewed by Forbes Magazine uh, in December, all those oh let's talk about the next year 2022 will be the year of consolidation and competition for cannabis you said this quote it's a long quote by the way regulations marketing and scale cannabis in its current regulatory environment is not adaptable or scalable the market is experiencing arrested development due to crippling tax regulations a lack of institutional banking and the commoditization of the plant leaving operators with little to no margin for revenue and further incentivizing the consolidation of the industry, the MSO expansion. We talked about on the show extensively. Quote, creating an emotional connection with consumers will continue to be key to success in cannabis, much like any industry. But in cannabis, brands must also create a strong connection with bud tenders who are highly influential in shaping consumers' buying preferences. You can spend all the money you want on marketing, but if the bud tender suggests a different product, then you can't win. I love that. By consolidating and growing, companies enhance their ability to execute comprehensive multi-pronged marketing strategies that engage consumers and bud tenders at all levels. Surviving this year is possible by creating a consistent product 
building an authentic brand and getting as much shelf space in as many dispensaries in as many states as possible. How's that hold up in the last four months that you said that? God, well, you know, I got to give credit to my marketing team there as well for uh, for editing my words because I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, <laughs> you know, that that's exactly what's going on, and I, and I stand by those comments, and I have for for a long time. Um, and that's really because I believe to navigate the cannabis market, you really have to take a macroeconomic analysis of what's happening now and what's going to happen in 10 years and 20 years and where in the supply chain do you want to be? Do you really want to be, uh, you know, the farmer growing the grain for the gray goose? Or do you want to be own the liquor store that only has geographic loyalty? Or do you want to own gray goose, right? And in an environment where you've got an organic plant that even genetically identical plants grown under different conditions will produce different relative weight to volumes of minor and major cannabinoids and terpene profiles. I don't care what celebrity is endorsing your brand. I don't care how shiny your package is. If right. you haven't delivered the same product in two different states, you don't have a brand. Okay. So it's really our thesis, you know, our, our venture fund is thesis is really about delivering consistent quality con product to consumers. And that's the key, right? A Coca-Cola is a Coca-Cola is a Coca-Cola, right. no matter where you are, right? Because the same is objective. The best is subjective, right? The Clear, which is one of our premier uh, portfolio companies, uh, I could make an argument they're the best, but it doesn't matter, right? The point is, it really doesn't matter, right? It's one all kinds of high times cup, one, you know, one all kinds of stuff. <clears throat> but that doesn't matter. What matters is that when you buy a Clear pen in Boston or LA or Vegas or Denver or Detroit, it's the same. It's exactly the same. It's like McDonald's, right? consistent exactly. quality product. Exactly. You got it. You got it exactly. And so I stand by that. And I think that's because as we get ubiquitous legalization, right? And I believe that, you know, it's, it's, it's coming, right? <laughs> and I feel like it's that. Not if, but when, right? I feel like it's that when at, at episode of, or uh, Holy Grail, when the guy's running at the castle and he keeps running at the castle and he never gets, he never quite <laughs> get there. Right. That's how, that's how it yeah. feels to me. But now, okay, we see the MSO operators, they're all expanding, they're growing themselves up, they're buying much more facilities, they're, they're just expanding their, their sites, they're, they're preparing for what eventually will be legalization. That's what they're going to do. And I sure. feel like it's it, in the media, I'm a big you know, critic of the media in general in terms of all because of the, the digital disruption that goes on with the media. And before that, it's like, okay, let's deregulate. When deregulation came into play, all these media companies started gobbling each other to create monopolies. We're getting to that point again here. We're getting okay. monopolies already set up before we even get the legalization. You, you got it exactly. And so there's, there's some other things at play here that, that are important to understand about why that happened. Um, all of the big cannabis companies right now today, and I say big, I mean basically big market cap companies that are Canadian traded, okay? Whether they were SPACs or not, they were SPACs. Okay, because what they were doing is raising money at extremely high valuations based off of extremely high multiples. And then they were going in and buying uncorrelated assets to try to get their revenue to catch up to their valuations. But the problem with doing that is that when you're going out and you're buying a bunch of $20 an hour employees, okay, you are no longer buying culture, right? You're not buying scale, you're buying the revenue, right? And so when you look at companies like Verano, right, missing, missing earnings, not missing how much, like they couldn't get their earnings together, right? When you look at companies that have uh, consolidated all of these different assets, they haven't grown up, 
right? They've just bought different assets because they're being run by Canadian bankers. And that creates a very unstable ecosystem, okay? That doesn't have any relationship with the consumer. All they're trying to do is basically own supply chain, which doesn't establish any kind of real relationship with the consumer, nor does it deliver quality product. Um, so yes, there are, let's call monopolies being created where they're owning <clears throat> large grows. But what I would submit to you is that it's not really a monopoly until somebody owns the consumer. Okay. And that's simply because whether, when you're producing all these products in different States, even though the brand says the same, you know, it says whatever, Cresco, whatever it says on it, if you haven't produced the same product consistently, right, then you haven't really created a monopoly. All you've created is the supply chain, which means that as you get ubiquitous legalization and further competition, it just creates margin compression, right? We watch that in uh, Oregon specifically, right? So every market is its own little, little test of its own little ecosystem based mm -hmm. off of how many licenses were issued, how many medical, what was the regulatory environment? Is it medical? Is it rec? How many med patients are there? How many dispensaries are there? Every little ecosystem is its, its own little uh, uh, test on what it's really going to look like in 20 years. And I think Colorado has done the best job now, not perfect, but done the best right. job of allowing the cannabis company to grow with real consumer driven market theory. Um, and not trying to, not trying to suffocate them with a, with a, with a tax rate. That's just over the roof. Absolutely. Well, I mean, the feds did that for us, so they don't, you know, <laughs> no, right. reason to put, no reason to put two pillows on grandma. When you, you know see I mean? the craft cannabis companies in California struggling with a tax revenue oh, and, yeah. and, wanting, and needing for an increase because, well, a billion dollars, you know, billion dollars, that's not enough in the tax revenue for California for the coffers. Governor Newsom wants more. Then you have it's, the issues in New Jersey with unionization. Got it. Where they just open that up. That cannabis is just not taxed like a normal business, right? Yeah. That's, that's really all. I would ask for as somebody who holds a lot of private cannabis assets is yeah. treat us like a normal business period. That's it. That's all we are asking for. Well, that's, that's all and, we're asking for. And that's just it's, the cream of the crop. Then there's the issue. I was just mentioning uh, the, the uh, cannabis wing of the international union of journeyman of allied trades. Now they got you and help with, with uh, some bud tenders and got 22 employees in, a, in the, into a cannabis dispensary into a three-year agreement. For unionization, mm -hmm. and we know that's going to spread across the board. Hey, to the uh, group, the group at a uh, local 420 CED in New Jersey, good for them. Good on them to get the you know wage increases and benefits. Yep, the other thing that wasn't talked about either, which I'm going to keep hampering here on this program because I got it through the grassroots marketing series. I know it's our sister series where mm -hmm. they talked. We talked to um, Evan Sumner of the Maine Growers Alliance, and how okay. Maine was trying to go ahead and institute where a metric was going to be the only tracking service that was going to be allowed. Right. And some companies were not going to be able to allow them. They were not going to be able to afford it because it was just too much. Those kind of things going along here. These are issues that are not being looked at right now. And when you want companies to also look as well, they need to keep their bottom line as, as best as possible. But this right here, you're seeing, you know, the big boys taking their spot even before we get to legalization. The big companies are already holding, they're holding their spots. They're the pillars now. Where's yeah. the room for the little guy? You know what? And that is more of a uh, capital markets issue than it is a cannabis market issue, if I'm being honest with you. So that's yeah. not unique to cannabis, frankly. Um, when you really are looking at cannabis, does it hurt the cannabis, the little guy, as you say, 
the little guy for there to not be federal legalization. And what I would say to you is that the only reason that I was even able to start a venture capital firm and make it this far was because there was not federal legalization. If I would have been in Canada, I wouldn't have made it because I've been able to scale up as we've gotten more and more legalization. Okay. So what I would submit to you is that if we get the safe banking or if we get uh, federal legalization, it actually is going to make it almost impossible for the little guy to have an opportunity. That's the truth. So, and that's why, I, and I, I mean, five years ago, I was worrying about it too. And I saw all these C-level executives coming in. Listen, you're giving legitimacy to the space, but I know what you're going to do soon enough. That's the writings on the wall, which is why I'm saying, and I will say it over and over. I talked to every lobbying uh, organization, United States Cannabis Council, CPAIR, NCIA. I talked to them all. Listen, yeah. you need, okay, diversity, equity, inclusion, fine. Social equity, sure. Everybody needs a seat at the table before this comes to pass. That has to happen. If there's a way to do it, all these companies pay attention to this program. Remember, you need to have a seat at the table. So you need to be spoken, need to be heard for, and you don't want to be stepped on. Yep. And it's it's going to be a tough road to hoe. Let me tell yeah, you. Yeah, it is. Now, I'll tell you this, and I'll, let's go and move along into some legal issues when it comes to mergers and acquisitions. This was a really great story. And actually, we talked to uh, one of the companies as part of this that we've had on the program. So legal experts brought this up, and I saw this about mergers and acquisitions, M&A contracts, published in the National Law Review. In the last year, parties have announced cannabis M&A deals in the hundreds of millions and even billion-dollar ranges. You've seen that. I'm sure you might have been a part of those yourselves. It's not hard to see, however, how recent decisions refusing to enforce cannabis-related contracts could negatively impact M&A activity in the industry. Indeed, it is hard to think of a greater deterrent to consolidation than the mm -hmm. inability to actually enforce the party's carefully crafted deals. So the contracts might not even hold water. So here's one case they talk about that there's a way to get out of this mess through a common commercial term, arbitration. So in the case of Williams versus Ease Solutions, the cannabis delivery service based out of uh, California, we've, we talked about on the program, uh, the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of California rejected an illegality challenge, illegality challenge to a contract asserted by a California resident who downloaded a cannabis mobile application by created by Ease Solutions. The district court's reasoning was elegant in its simplicity. The party's contract expressly provided for the arbitration of the party's disputes. And under the FAA Federal Arbitration Act and binding Supreme Court precedent, any issues of illegality were to be determined by the arbitrators at the federal courts. What do you think about this workaround there, Rick? I think it's the only option that the federal court had, right? Because like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, if soon as two state citizens sue each this is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply other it becomes a federal matter and because we are not currently uh have any precedence to oversee federal matters in in the terms of cannabis the only option is arbitration so the answer is simple right it's not that it's an eloquent solution it's the only solution yep also they go on to say that quote unless and until congress amends the controlled substances act 10 or otherwise resolves the existing and widening conflict between federal law and state laws on cannabis, the illegality defense will loom over any attempt to enforce a cannabis-related contract, no matter how big or small. Absolutely. They also say cannabis investors, businesses, and those who do business with them would be wise to take a lesson from the case law above and opt for arbitration or litigation in their commercial cannabis contracts. Now, are there any remedies you think besides this that will alleviate What's the best course of action if companies do encounter this issue? You know, if arbitration is not something they can do, it's not embedded into the contract, you know, if it's going to be, the contract's going to be compromised. You're, you're screwed. Um, I mean, (laughs) as far as your options, I mean, I'm going to give it to you cards on the table, which is, this is, this is a systemic problem, right? This is, this is one symptom of the larger issue, which is the inefficiency of the regulations from a federal to a state component, right? And really, it just comes down to the feds need to make it so that the states have control of their own destiny, right? So that the states can interact and do business themselves, allow the federal banks to do business with them. Um, This is part of the reason that there's a lot of cannabis companies in trouble is that they didn't have the foresight to put these very technical things into the type of deals they were doing. Um, And really through no fault of their own, in any other business, these are very commonplace mistakes that new operators would have made. But to be successful in cannabis has so little to do with cannabis and so much more to do with uh, navigating a very difficult changing regulatory environment that the most successful cannabis companies are you know, they're attorneys by attrition because they've, they've had to create these intricate structures to navigate such a difficult climate. And that un- is an unfortunate truth of the cannabis industry, frankly. Yeah. Um, you know, there's great products that I've seen that deserved a better fate, but because of their capital position, uh, weren't able to continue. And it, it's really tragic because they were providing value to consumers, which at the end of the day, the only goal is to add value to people's lives, period, right? At the end of the day, somebody's using this product. Are you adding value to that consumer's life? And everything else we do is just compliance. Everything else we do is just to be able to provide that value. And being able to navigate that is expensive, difficult, complicated. And And and, as a cost has to be burned into into your bottom line, it has to be something you have to, it's, it's imperative. You, you, got ha- it. you basically have to have a department just for that in within your doing, or unless you're going to be like that one company. What's the one I always talk about that, that had to burn $12 million worth of product. Was it? 
oh, I forgot the name of it. I got to go look for it again. In British Columbia, I will never forget. But I, it's just, it's those kind of things. Say again? It is. Oh, totally, totally. I'll look it up over the break. Um, in the meantime, we got to go take another commercial break. I'm here again with Rick Battenberg, Chief Investment Officer at Clientel Capital. Again, the website is clientel, C-L-I-I-N-T-E-L capital.com. We're back after a short break. Rolling into some sponsors, but we'll be right back with more Blunt Business. Welcome back to Blunt Business. I'm here with Rick Battenberg, the Chief Investment Officer at Clientel Capital. Before, during the break, I had to go and look up because I mentioned, and again, this is where you need to worry about compliance, folks. By the way, not just now, but we have, a, we have two examples. Number one was CanTrust. I have said this many times. October 14, 2019, what a black day for that company. Had to destroy $12 million worth of plants, $65 million worth of uh, product, I think it was. And then another one just recently, it wasn't too long ago, in Canada, that they had to go and destroy 6 million packages of dried cannabis extracts and edibles. 20% of their entire product. Whoa. That's a lot of... Just... So keep that in well, mind. We like, to joke. we like to joke. We're, we're not in the cannabis business. We're in the compliance business. And I'm telling you, when you brought up compliance, you said how important it was. I'm just putting those two examples. That's just Canada. Wait till we get it here. We're going to hear stories like this unless all of you, and we're saying it out of love. We're saying out of respect for the industry. You need to keep an eye on all this stuff. That's why you listen to this program because you see I'm on this soapbox every week, thumping this over and over like a pulpit. I need to make this clear to all of you. Keep that in mind. And that's my opinion. That's not of the guests or you know anybody else here on the program. Now, oh, you Rick, got, got my vote, dude. You got my vote. Don't worry. I appreciate it. All right. One more thing I got to ask about. And we did talk about investors and the investors that are out there. Um, Pitchbook recently wrote, South by Southwest recently happened. Long been a beacon of the future that will be funded by venture capital. The event secured its place as a vital part of the venture capital ecosystem and its ever optimistic quest to create the future of everything. And this year was no exception. They had experts delving into some of Silicon Valley's biggest passion projects, everything from crypto and climate science to the metaverse and psychedelics. We're starting to see now in our space, psychedelics are starting to come into a parallel where mm -hmm. companies are looking to go ahead and add that into their portfolio or looking to create parallel companies. What do you think about incorporating that second to the portfolio of companies that you might be consulting or that others are looking into? Um, so interestingly enough, so, you know, there's a lot of people that assume I know a lot about psychedelics because I have my work in the cannabis industry. So, you know, I was uh, uh, forced to, to do some diligence and macroeconomic analysis of the psychedelic industry uh, myself, just by nature of the fact that I was being asked so much. And frankly, um, as it pertains to cannabis specifically, I don't feel like I feel like they're completely incongruent. Um, and part of that is just because of the macroeconomics of how uh, psilocybin um, and well, OK, psilocybin specifically uh, psychedelics obviously can involve ketamine and, and other other psychedelics. Sure. Um, however, for about a quarter million dollars, <laughs> you can produce 80 in a way, uh, uh, shipping container. You can produce 80 pounds of dry psilocybin a month, mm -hmm. okay, for very, very cheap. And the economics of that break down very quickly uh, based off of how much psilocybin people can consume. Um, 
so I went to some of my friends who consume the most psilocybin and I'm like, how much are you, you know, how much, how much are you using? And then I reverse engineered the numbers and they break down really fast. There's not a lot of margin there just based on how cheap you can produce it. So the psilocybin industry, the psychedelics industry is really going to have to take a more pharma-like route because they're going to have to charge more for the product itself based on how cheaply they can produce it and how much people can consume. So I don't believe that they are in parallel to cannabis in general. Okay. Not saying it's a bad, a bad business. And, and frankly, I think it's a fantastic thing for the mental well-being of the nation. Uh, but from a business perspective, it's not, uh, psychedelics is not something that I think, um, you know, I've looked at and it's not something that I'm- You don't want to operate under the same name. Uh, no, I, I just don't think that, I think it's going to take a farmer route. I don't think that I don't think that uh, it's going to grow up like cannabis at all. Okay. Um, I don't. I and I think it'd be there may be recreational distribution, but I even if there is, I think that it's going to be very difficult to make money at it um, if there is recreational distribution of psychedelics. So that does not interest me as a venture capitalist to look at um, that space just because of the very and you know what I, I've been proven wrong before so you know it maybe something changed but my very you know hands-on and uh, and and dive into the macroeconomic analysis of, of psilocybin I immediately was like oh this has got some big problems well I, I bring that up as well because I know next week uh, as I record the program we're recording it just before 420 uh, Benzing is going to have their cannabis capital conference I'll be there and they're going to have the psychedelic wing they're going to have speak. They're going to have speakers. You're going to have companies that are already embedded into that right now. So the investors are going to be visiting that show. They're going to get exposed to it probably the first time because just really this is the year that psychedelics has been brought into the conversation. And for us as cannabis radio, I mean, I totally respect where you're coming from with, with what you said, but sure. I think it's something where you at least have to, you at least have the little oversight. You got to at least observe what's going on at the. Least. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've already got, uh, several one-on-one -on -one meetings with some companies that uh, have asked to meet with me that are in the psychedelic space. Because again, I believe that, you know, I'm always, a, I have a policy that drives, uh, drives my, my right hand, Monica Pino crazy. You know, I always take the meeting and um, that's because you don't, you don't always know everything. And, and there's nobody that can teach you faster than somebody who's trying to prove to you that they have a, a competitive advantage in a market that I don't understand. So they're usually the fastest way for me to understand the macroeconomic market. So I love hearing from entrepreneurs that uh, are passionate about bringing something to market and they feel like they have an advantage. So you know, to first contextualize that advantage, they need to contextualize the market for me. So um, I'm excited to hear from some of those uh, psychedelic companies. So, you know, prove me wrong. But uh, right now I, I, I don't see a uh, advantage unless I was a pharma company. And if I was a pharma company, I'd be looking real close at, at, at psychedelics because they're, you know, they're, it's starting to gain momentum. And I think right yeah. now that industry at the absolutely moment is about you, five to seven years be behind wary, what cannabis be is right wary, now. Right. Be wary when everybody is super excited, you know, be very wary, right? That's when you see these gigantic cannabis SPACs that raised a bunch of money and now can't find a qualifying deal, right? Raising money on excitement is very different than raising money on fundamentals. It's very different. And right now, Alex is all just excitement. That right? kind of so, goes back to my point earlier on when we talked about who are the ones that are getting the deals and how quickly they're being squandered because it's based on excitement and hype. Yeah, that's exactly right. And right now, all of the deals getting done in psychedelics are based on in hype. Now, that's not to say that it might develop, it might change. It may, there may be, you know, some good research out there, though. We're getting, not in America, not but in Imperial College in London, they're putting a lot of good stuff. 
Yeah, again, please don't don't misunderstand. Well, no, no, no. I think it right. needs to come to the world, and I hope it does. It, I just, from a from a very like sterile venture perspective, I don't see an entry point that I that is attractive that I could go back to my investors and go, hey, we can take a strategic position and get a ten x. Oh, no, no, no. And I agree with you. Listen, yeah. it's got to take a lot more going on for the folks of a, of a clientele capital to say, you know what? Okay, let's look into this more. Let's actually be seriously talking about this. It's going to take time. It's five to seven years, I think, behind where cannabis is now. Before we get to, I mean, listen, Oregon's the one state that actually has legalization now for it. And there's other, you know, and those are the places where you could have some shape or form of psychedelics that are being used as treatment right now. We're yep. seeing some benefits, but it's, but I guess the idea is also is because we're seeing some similar benefits, the same kind of entourage effect that cannabis has that we're seeing from psychedelics. But Absolutely. the research there, isn't there there's yet. There's so much benefit to it. Don't don't get me correct. Twisted. Correct. There's so much benefit to it. The, the 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 contention I have is that the way that the uh, it's going to be developed is going to take a more farmer route, which means that it's going to take hundred million dollars to bring something to to market. Whereas cannabis for two million bucks you could get to market. Yeah. That's a, those are way different business models. Way different business models. Um, Agreed. And, uh, yeah. So, and then I think that's going to have to take that route just based off of the, uh, the analysis that I've done so far, but, um, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm taking meetings with, uh, some psychedelic companies really just so I can learn more because, you know, diversity of skill set and information is, is the key to understanding the macroeconomic, uh, markets of cannabis or whatever you're evaluating is getting information and talking to experts. That's why you say I'll take the meeting. That's right. Always take uh, again, meeting. here with you Rick know, Battenberg, <laughs> here again with Rick Battenberg. Uh, Chief Investment Officer of Clientel Capital website against Clientel, C-L-I-I-N-T-E-L. See the play with words? Clientelcapital.com. And when they go to the website, how they can go ahead and reach out, how can listeners or potential uh, companies that are listening to the program, how can they go ahead and best way to go and contact you or what they should learn about when they go to the website? So, you know, we're a family business, make no mistake. You know, it's myself and my father and uh, Monica Pina does investor relations. And then we have uh, some, some smart analysts. we got some smart people working for us. But at the end of the day, you know, we believe in people, plain and simple. You know, I will bet on the person before I bet on the deal. And that is because the deal constantly changes, especially in emerging markets where the environment's changing. You yeah. want to bet on a person that's emotionally connected to the success or failure of the business. You want to bet on somebody who really understands their numbers. And, uh, I will always bet on those people because they'll find a way, you know, they'll find a way to be successful versus, um, you know, you can have a shiny business plan, but um, at the end of the day, you got to bet on the people and uh, myself and my father, we are, uh, we are people, people. <laughs> so we're always looking for uh, the, the courageous and, and uh, the bold. So Rick, this yeah. is a great conversation. Really enjoy having you on the show and let's definitely keep in touch and, you know, Let's get, keep, keep us posted on the new announcements and things like that. Let's go ahead and, you know, we'll stay connected. And hopefully people will get to catch you at Benzing at the Cannabis Capital Conference. I'll, I'll be there with bells on. I'm excited. I love Miami. <laughs> Too much fun there. <laughs> all right. Thank you, listeners, for listening to another Blunt Business. Really appreciate all you listening. I hope you got a whole lot of this program. Come back next week. We'll talk to you next time.
The opinions expressed on this CannabisRadio.com program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of the staff and management of CannabisRadio.com. Any rebroadcast, republication, or retransmission of this program without proper consent is prohibited. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications at TryLifeMD.com? We're now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. It's fun to put on jeans that you couldn't get into six months ago. Every morning, I look forward to getting on the scale. For anybody who's struggling with their weight, it's a godsend. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com.